listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. The church is located at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. Thank you for joining us today as Dr. Pollock opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. Okay, please take your Bibles and let's turn together to Ezra chapter 3. I'm going to read the first six verses. And when the seventh month was come, and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered themselves together as one man to Jerusalem. Then stood up Jeshua, the son of Josedach, and his brethren, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brethren, and builded the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings thereon, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. And they set the altar upon his bases, for fear was upon them because of the people of those countries. And they offered burnt offerings thereon unto the Lord, even burnt offerings morning and evening. They kept also the Feast of Tabernacles, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number, according to the custom as the duty of every day required. And after it offered the continual burnt offering, both of the new moons and of all the set feasts of the Lord that were consecrated, and of every one that willingly offered a free will offering unto the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month began they to offer burnt offerings unto the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. There's a very fundamental question to ask before you come to these verses, and that is, why did the people return to the land Again, we know they've come back, and I'm sure that very many reasons and motivations in their own mind, but there was one central purpose and reason for their return. And that was, of course, uh, to be obedient to Cyrus, uh, to indicate their commitment to the word of God through Cyrus of old. You have there the verse number two of chapter one. Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he hath charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? Is God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and here's the reason, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is the God which is in Jerusalem. And so their purpose of returning to the land was to rebuild the temple. And that really sets the scene for these opening verses of chapter 3, because verse 6 ends with the words, But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. And the question may come, are they being sluggardly in their obedience? What's the reason why by the temple's foundation has not yet been laid? They are home. What's happening here? And you'd be wrong if you read into that text that there's something amiss here. There's nothing amiss here. The signs are very good. Now, I would say the signs are good at this point, and it does not mean there are no problems to come. It's always the case in the Lord's work. There are good spells when things are going smooth in the work of God, and there are times when things are challenging, and Ezra will make that very clear to us. But this is a time when the Lord is blessing and undertaking, and things are very good amongst the people of God. 
Because what's happening here is the fact that they went to their cities upon their return, and then as one man they gathered themselves together to worship at Jerusalem, verse 1 of our passage. And the purpose of their gathering together was especially to offer sacrifices, especially burnt offerings. These are things that come when you read the passage. You'll see reference there to burnt offerings in verse uh, 2, 3, uh, 4, and 5. There are references there to, in fact, verse 6 also, to the burnt offerings. And so you've got to think to yourself, well, what's the purpose of these sacrifices? Well, when you think of the sacrificial system of the Old Covenant, you're reminded that the sacrifice is a recognition of sin. That's important. These people were in captivity due to their sin, and now they're returning. They are making public recognition of their sin before God, and they are pursuing atonement. They recognize their need for atonement. Now you turn back briefly just to Leviticus chapter 1, and you'll see there again just, just one example of the, the reason for the burnt offerings. And you have in Leviticus chapter 1, uh, so that for some of the various sacrifices and burnt offerings are there, and verse number uh, five, it says, and he shall kill the bullock before the Lord and the priest, Aaron's son, shall bring the blood and sprinkle the blood round about the altar that's by the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into his pieces. And so that's the procedure for these burnt offerings. But verse number four says, and he shall put his hand upon the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. You see, even before the procedures, there is the explanation of the benefit. They're going to have to do it this way. This is what's going to happen. But it is the fact that the burnt offering is given to cover the sins of the one bringing that offering. And so we're seeing here the encouraging signs that the people have recognized their sins and their recognition of their need for atonement. They are, if you like, pursuing obedience. They know it's right to obey the word of God. Verse number one, they are doing those things that are written by Moses, the man of God. And they're doing so in a wholehearted fashion, as we'll see later on. And so all of this is, I believe, showing us that these people, as they return, have a burden to be in a right relationship with the Lord. That's the ultimate burden at this point. They're, they're going to get to work in the temple very soon. But first things first. Get first things first. Get into a right relationship with the Lord. And that really leads to the first of the lessons I'm going to bring to you uh, tonight. I'm really going to look at this passage under three sort of real biblical spiritual lessons. And the first lesson is about spiritual priority. Because when you see the actions here before they begin to lay the foundation, they're demonstrating for us spiritual priority. And that spiritual priority is being in a right relationship with the Lord. The sacrificial system is showing us again that there must be the shedding of blood for there to be reconciliation with the Lord. And so the sacrifice is needed for that right relationship. And the actions here emphasize the simple truth. Being in a right relationship with God must be a first priority. One commentator puts it this way. To an outsider, looking on this would probably have appeared topsy-turvy. In architectural terms, it would be like landscaping your garden before building the main house. However, in spiritual terms, it makes complete sense. 
The people of God understood that they had been exiled precisely because they had not loved the Lord, their God, with all their heart and mind and strength. As they returned to rebuild, it seems that they fully comprehended that this vertical relationship with their Redeemer took priority over everything else, even the building of a temple to his name, end quote. They understood that first things must come first. Being in that right relationship with the Lord was a first priority. So the question is obvious. Is your relationship with the Lord first in your priority list? Does everything else come underneath that overarching first priority? Now, that does not mean that in a given moment of a given day that you are not prioritizing perhaps your work circumstance. You know, the Lord understands that. It's not the case that you should be, you know, a, a monk in a monastery somewhere, uh, continually involved in religious devotions. Uh, when you're at work, it's very important that you concentrate on the work at hand. That's vitally important. The Lord understands that and indeed commands it. What we're saying here is about where does your work place in your priorities? Is it underneath your relationship with the Lord? And indeed, is your work relation, is your work uh, practices done in such a way as to show the priority of God in your life? And that you're a servant of the Lord and he is first and foremost in your life. And so is it the case that your walk with God comes first? Now we understand this whole sacrificial system points us to Christ. It is through Christ's blood and his righteousness that we are made right with God. And so this is going back to the old covenant. And we know the types and the shadows point us to the finished sacrifice of Christ. And so when you think about a right relationship with the Lord, are you reconciled to God through Christ? It's not about being religious. It's about being religious in the right way. It's about having a relationship with God, putting God first, but doing so upon the foundation that you're reconciled through the blood of the final sacrifice. And Christ's merits have secured your reconciliation with God and therefore your right with God. You see, there are people out there and they would say they prioritize a spiritual life. They, they, they prioritize our relationship with God, but the foundation's wrong. Your priority must be a fellowship with God, but it must begin by being right with God through faith in Christ Jesus. And then as a believer, we have to pursue and maintain that proper fellowship with the Lord. So that there is the proper legal status, reconciliation to God through Christ. And then there's the ongoing maintenance of that proper fellowship in terms of our sanctification. Uh, think of the words of 1 John chapter 1. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And so there is that secondary, if you like, experience of the child of God. They're reconciled to God, justified by faith alone. And then that life of sanctification continues and the maintenance of that fellowship with the Lord. And so this is not abstract. Are you zealous to please the Lord? Are you careful not to grieve the Spirit of God by your words and by your actions and by your thoughts? Are you determined to keep Christ first in your life, to seek first the kingdom? That's the lesson here. Prioritize the things of God above everything else. 
And if a choice must be made, if it is God or man or God or self, it must always be God first. That proper right relationship with the Lord. The second thing then to note is a lesson about spiritual authority. So we've seen spiritual priority here in terms of of putting our relationship with God first. But you also see here the presence of these leaders. They're mentioned in verse number two. Then stood up Jeshua, the son of Josedak, and his brethren, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel. Now, it seems to be the case that Zerubbabel at this time, again, we know he's in the royal line from Matthew chapter 1, but he is serving in a similar way to Nehemiah does later on as the, as the governor of the, the, the returning people. And so he, if you like, he's the, he's the political leader. And Jeshua is the spiritual leader as the priest and so these two men are, are uniting in a common desire to bring the people of God in the proper direction. It's interesting, later on when you go through the rest of Ezra, you'll see that Zerubbabel comes to the fore because uh, so much of the rest of the book is so practical and, and governmental. But at this point, Jeshua comes to the fore. Uh, but alongside that they lead the people in a right pathway. Leaders are leading properly here. That's a good thing. God has instituted in his will for his people the place of godly leadership. And we saw it last time. It's part of God's way of maintaining order in his church. But Israel's history is littered with bad leadership. Leading people into iniquity and idolatry. Especially in the area of false worship. There's a litany of stories of bad leadership. Again, false altars and Baal worship and all of these various things that come in the history of the Old Testament. But now we have two men and they are rising to leadership along with their brethren and they're bringing the people in the right way. They're leading the people to God through Christ in the way that God commanded. That is how godly leaders must function. But if you think of this spiritual authority, we shouldn't miss the fact that this authority is being exercised courageously. There's courage shown here. I don't know, did you notice the words of verse number three? And they set the altar upon his bases, for fear was upon them because of the people of those countries. Now that, that reference, fear was upon them because of the people, is actually very difficult to translate. And there are various ideas as to what may be meant by that particular clause. Matthew Henry puts it this way. They were in the midst of enemies that bore ill will to them and their religion, for whom they were an unequal match. So, so there are broken down people, uh, you know, few tens of thousands coming back to their land, and they're, they're, they're going to be about a business that the surrounding nations have always hated. Oh, the nations, they always conspire against the Lord and against his anointed, and so they're, they're in that challenging circumstance. Well, Henry continues, And though they were so, yet they built the altar. So some read it. They would not be frightened from their religion by the opposition they were likely to meet with in it. Never let the fear of man bring us into this snare. So he's making the point that one might read this is that though there was this obvious fear of the circumstance, yet they still continue to obey the Lord's will. That thereby shows their courage. Another way of reading is this. 
Because they were so, says Henry, therefore they set up the altar. Apprehension of danger should stir us up to our duty. Have we many enemies? Then it is good to have God our friend and to keep up our correspondence with him. And so you see how the, the different ways, and there are those who are saying, well, they built the altar despite the fact there was the people around them, if you like, in, 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 in opposition to them. They said, we're going, well, no matter what, we're going to do it anyway. And others are saying, no, the fear was significant, but it drove them to pursue this relationship with the Lord. Now, either way, and I think there's probably uh, certainly truth in all of that. But either way, they are courageous in the face of opposition. And that must be the case. You know, we, we, are, we are obligated to pray for the, the ministers and the missionaries of our denomination. It's part of our responsibility as members of this church. We, we, we commit ourselves to pray for them. And part of our praying for them must be that they would have courage in the face of the opposition of this world. This world is a difficult place. You know, Paul is praying for uh, the word of the Lord to have free course and be glorified. And he's praying for them to be delivered from evil men because not all men of faith. Uh, there's a recognition that there's, there's danger in the world. And so we're praying for the men of God to have courage. But they're not only courageous, they're also Christ-focused. They are leading the people in the building of the burnt offering and the altar at which those burnt offerings can be offered. And they're taking the people, therefore, typically to Christ. Where we look back and we see Christ in this, they're looking forward to the Messiah to come. But again, the principle is very obvious. The leaders are leading the people in a Christ-focused manner. It's not about self. It's not about an empire. It's not about controlling and having all of this power and authority. It is about leading the people in the paths of righteousness for Christ's sake. Serving their greater master and their Lord in these things. You turn across to Colossians chapter 1. Just to, again, illustrate this from the example of the Apostle Paul. And all who seek to lead the people of God must do so in this Christ-focused fashion. He must have the preeminence in the life of the individual minister and missionary and thereby also in the pursuit of their leadership of the work of God. So Colossians chapter 1 verse 24, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. He's referring to the church here. And then he says, verse 25, whereof I am made a minister. Now he's making the point that he's a servant of the church. He's been called and appointed by God uh, to give his life for the benefit of the people of God. And how does he do that? Well, verse 27. To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus Whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. There's a Christ-centered, focused ministry. What's the purpose? The benefit of Christ's people. How does the apostle benefit Christ's people? By preaching Christ. What's the reason for that? To present them to Christ. Christ called him. He ministers for Christ's people. He does so by preaching Christ that he might present them to Christ. That's a Christ-centered ministry. And it's very, very easy 
for people to get knocked off track, to get distracted by other things in the work of God. And the benefit of God's people is a continual pursuit of a Christ-centered focus. So these are things to pray over, to seek the face of God for, for his help and his grace in these things. Well, we've seen the spiritual priority and spiritual authority. Thirdly and finally, note a lesson regarding spiritual unity in God's people. Because again, it's right at the very surface. Verse number one, the people gathered themselves together as one man to Jerusalem. This is after they've gone to their cities and they're uniting together around this Christ-centered focus. They've gone to their cities and now they've come back to Jerusalem to engage at the proper time in these various ordinances and feasts. They've come together to worship. Again, there's interesting details regarding the timing here. It refers to the seventh month. Now, the seventh month was the time of the Day of Atonement and the Feast of Tabernacles referred to in this passage. And again, there's various ideas. Well, how long were the people back before they engaged in worshipping the Lord in this manner? Well, from chapter 7 and Ezra's return, we know it takes four months to get from Babylon to Jerusalem. That's Ezra chapter 7. And so the general thought is they likely would have left sometime in the spring as the weather's improving. And they're heading in the springtime and they're going four months journey. And so perhaps getting there sometime towards the end of what we might refer to as our summer. And so the seventh month here is very likely rapid obedience to the will of God. Likely, again, I understand there's some degree of speculation in that assertion, but that's the general thought of those who are commentating on this particular matter. Henry, uh, at the four of those commentators. And so what you're seeing here is that they come to Jerusalem, they give off their offerings, and then they go to their cities. And, and what are they finding in their cities? They're finding ruin and destruction through the impact of war. And yet they leave all of that ruin and come to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. That's a tremendous sign of their obedience. And I'm not speculating there either because later on in Haggai, they lose that focus. They're building their houses, they're repairing their dwellings, and they've forgotten about the priority of the temple. And Haggai's got to come and shake them up. But at this point, it seems to be the case that they understand, they understand the significance here. And they leave their houses, if you like, in rubble. And they come back and they put God's worship first. And they do so as one man. How does that happen? Only by God's grace. It is by God's grace because chapter 1, verse 5, refers again that these people are those who God is working in their hearts and stirring up their hearts unto obedience And so God, as he works in their heart, he brings about this unity of sacrificial, sincere service, progressing the work of God at this time. It's a tremendous example of what God's work can do. It can bring people together with one mind and one accord to give themselves to the worship of God as their first priority. You see, this unity is seen in collective, comprehensive obedience. It's spiritual worship. It's, it's from God. But true spiritual unity is always in obedience to God's word. 
And again, the ecumenical nonsense and all of these things around us, they're suggesting we should be unified, but it's not a unity in obedience. But when God works in men's heart, that unity is always in obedience to the word of God. Look at verse number two. What are they doing? They're offering burnt offerings as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Verse number four. They're doing these things as it is written according to the custom. They're obeying the will of God. They're they're engaging in the Feast of Tabernacles. Again, there's interesting discussion as to why that feast is mentioned. Why not the Day of Atonement that comes first on the seventh month? Why, why not the Day of Atonement? Well, the general thought is the temple's not built. They don't know the Ark of the Covenant anymore. And it may be the case they didn't feel they could engage in that form of worship at that time. But the Feast of Tabernacles, what was it all about? It was to remind the people that God redeemed them out of Egypt. You go back to Leviticus and you'll see that they were to stay in booth for seven days to remind them that God delivered them out of Egypt to the wilderness and they would always remember the work of God in the nation. And so what's happening here is very typical. It's very, very significant and fitting that they remember the Feast of Tabernacles at this point as they return back from their captivity through the mighty hand of God. You see, what you're seeing here is, is again, very, very precious God works in his people. And as he works in his people, he unites them in obedience. And when he unites them in obedience, he brings them to a point where they are God-centered and Christ-centered in their lives. We must call upon God for that. We want to get to the end point. Uh, If you like a, a vibrant, thriving church with new people being converted who are God centered and Christ focused, we want that urgently in the work of God in all of our churches. But how does it come about? Well, it comes about in the context of obedience, but it also comes because God works in their hearts. It's the work of God in the heart that leads to obedience and then leads to this glorious Christ-centered, God-centered worship season. May God be pleased to stir our hearts with a holy burden for such things. That we are not building a temple of rubble and stones and concrete. We are building the house of God and the church of Christ that is purchased with his blood. May God give us the joy of doing this together as one man, Christ-centered, as the Spirit of God works upon our souls for the glory of our Savior. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170 or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. You will be made very welcome. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania, at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. A Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Wednesday evening at 7 p.m. We preach Christ crucified.